When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Monday, June 14th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Jackson Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba stares down a second term full of challenge. Then the state health officer says low demand has forced him to turn away hundreds of thousands of vaccines. And a major wind farm project is greenlit in Tunica. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Amid a prolonged water crisis and a spike in violent crime, Jackson residents reaffirmed their faith in Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba at the ballot box last week. Lumumba coasted to victory in the city's mayoral race, securing nearly 70 percent of the total vote. He'll become the first Jackson mayor in 20 years to serve two consecutive terms. Lumumba is well aware of the challenges Jackson faces, but he tells MPB's Rob Lane he sees his convincing win as a vote of confidence. It is a very humbling place to find myself. But what I think that we were able to accomplish is approaching Jackson's problems, understanding that we don't know it all, nor thinking that we simply are so great and perfect that we're going to be able to solve the problems ahead of us by ourselves. What we've been able to do is commit to a process, a process of collective genius, a process which invites business owners into the fold, where we have our CEO roundtable discussion, a process that invites young people into the fold, where we have our mayor and the millennials roundtable discussion, a process by which we invite the community at large to the table when we participate in people's assemblies in order to look at how we solve our problems. We've been able to have some tangible signs of of progress, whether it's paving more miles of road in the last two years than the previous 10 years combined, whether it's saving our school district from the threat of state takeover, whether it's improving our bond rating and taking city employees off a furlough, giving them a small 2% raise, giving a career path to our our officers who 
had a 10-year gap before the next pay raise that they could expect, whether it's covering 100% of the health insurance premiums of all city employees, or lastly, whether it was the ability to recover $90 million from a failed contract that has not only burdened the, the city residents with bad water bills, but also burdened the city with insufficient revenue in our enterprise system. So we've made some huge leaps, but we understand that we have a long way to go and we're not satisfied. And so I think that, that what the residents saw was sincere a sincere effort, and that effort could not be accomplished without their support and, and their hard work as well. And so we look forward to building on that uh, and overcoming the things that we have in front of us now. What's your biggest priority for your second term? I always cheated that question, to be honest, because there's so many strong competing concerns. You know, obviously we want safety within our community. And, and, you know, as we see our nation gripped by the highest rise in violence and crime in more than a couple of decades, that is an ongoing challenge that we want to make sure that we have all hands on deck. But it's difficult to, to not acknowledge that we have infrastructure challenges that lead people without basic necessities and needs such as water. So we have to really tackle our enterprise, I mean, I'm sorry, our our infrastructure in a real comprehensive and integrated way. And so I'm more optimistic today than than I have been ever before that 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 money will be available. You know, we're, we're, you know, not only paying attention to what's taking place in Washington, we're making sure that we're a part of the conversation. We're making sure that we state what our needs are. And so we've been sharing that for quite some time. And we'll continue to make certain that Jackson is not left out of the fold as we look to do some very critical repairs, not only to drinking water, but to wastewater. Uh, It is more than an inconvenience. It is a matter of public health when people have sewage coming up in their yards or their breaks in the creeks behind their houses. So we want to deal with that as well as continue to deal with our road infrastructure. You mentioned keeping an eye on what's going on in Washington, and certainly I can imagine that federal funding is an important part of the picture as far as infrastructure is concerned. When's the last time you've spoken with the governor or lieutenant governor about uh, infrastructure funding on the state level? Well, we have ongoing conversations with them. We've been you know, in front of state leaders on, on multiple occasions. Sometimes we, we don't really discover or locate everything that we're looking for out of those conversations. But it isn't for a lack of making, you know, our needs apparent. And it isn't for, you know, an unwillingness to sit and have a conversation with anyone. Recently met with a group of state legislators to talk about the needs for Jackson and and those needs specific to our drinking water, our water infrastructure. And, you know, I've recently met with a federal delegation from Washington that came and and we did a tour of our water treatment facility and, and talked about the inefficiencies and, you know, the age and not only the lack of sustainability, but the lack of weatherization and and the lack of equity in that, you know, certain communities are disproportionately affected when we have challenges within our distribution system. And so we've lifted all of those things up. I think that those discussions have been encouraging and we're going to continue to push forward and, and look under every rock and look in every nook and cranny to get the resources that people need. You mentioned equity. And again, I don't want to keep harping on state government, but earlier this year, as I'm sure you're aware, Governor Reeves said that, quote, there is no systemic racism in America. In your view, 
is it impossible for the governor to understand and then address Jackson's challenges if he won't recognize the impact of systemic racism on the city? Well, I think that, that, you know, there has to be some ongoing education and dialogue and discussion there and certainly would be willing to have a very long and thorough conversation to point all of the areas of systemic racism that, that is applied. In fact, you know, I, I believe in the words of Barack Obama, where he said the greatest form of patriotism is the idea that America is not yet done. And, you know, I also remember the statement that was once made that if if you can't tell the truth about our past, then you become trapped in it. And we're still trapped in that. There's still evidence of racism. And we're seeing that each and every day. Uh, and I don't have to go through, you know, a litany of circumstances to, to point that out. But the reality is, is that we have to renew our fight each and every day to make sure that we're not discriminating against people, whether it's a question of color or, or whether it's a question of ideas that ultimately make certain that we don't represent people who are in poverty in the way that they should be represented. We have to present a dignity economy, an economy which moves us away from the cycles of humiliation that communities like Jackson have found themselves in to an economy which reflects the inherent dignity of every single person. And that's what we're trying to build on. That's what we want to see move forward in the city of Jackson, not only overcome our challenges, but be a model for the rest of the world. If Mississippi, which has had one of the worst reputations as it pertains to race, as it pertains to areas of discrimination, can identify a means by which we move forward right here in the capital city, then what does that say for the rest of the world? Our conversation with Jackson Mayor Shokwe and Tarthamumba continues on tomorrow's Mississippi edition. Coming up, Dr. Thomas Dobbs delivers an update on COVID-19 vaccinations. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The Mississippi Department of Health held a press briefing on Friday to address the state of COVID-19 vaccinations. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs says despite some progress, low vaccine uptake remains a cause for concern. We are seeing some complacency. We're seeing folks think that this is over. It's good that the cases are low, but we have a lot of challenges and we will continue to see deaths and we will continue to see cases and outbreaks. So if you haven't gotten vaccinated yet, please go ahead. We know that for people 65 and older, we've done a pretty good job. 75% plus of everybody in Mississippi 65 and older has been vaccinated, which is fantastic. But if we look at our our lower age groups, we do see uh, a lesser percentage of folks vaccinated. And we can see from our hospitalization trends in people in their 40s, that accounted for uh, 3% of hospitalizations back in January and accounts for 12% of hospitalizations now. So we know the vaccines work. We know that people are vulnerable even if they don't think they are. So please uh, get vaccinated. Dobbs notes that 36 percent of vaccines in the state have been taken by black Mississippians. That percentage is roughly on par with the state's overall black population. Over the past several months, a number of black pastors, politicians and community leaders have participated in vaccine awareness campaigns in Deep South and throughout the country. Dobbs was asked if his team has considered similar outreach efforts with white conservatives who polling shows are disproportionately 
moderately likely to be vaccine hesitant. He acknowledges that's been tough going. The same thing that happens with anything that you're successful, it's a partnership. And I will say that we did a, I tried to do a, um, an outreach in a, in a town hall for um, leaders of uh, in white churches or predominantly white churches in this very tepid response. We need our leaders in every community to step forward and make the bold stance of letting their, their congregants, letting their constituents know how important it is. You know, obviously we are going all out to make sure that vaccines are available to everybody with the minimum barriers possible, right? We're gonna do everything we can, but we can't do everything by ourselves. This is a community effort. And I just call on every member of the community who, who recognizes the importance of protecting one another to step forward and help your, your community, your partners, the people that are who you influence to understand the importance of getting protected with the vaccine. In a recent CNN interview, Governor Tate Reeves downplayed concern about Mississippi's vaccination rate, claiming that a combination of vaccinations and natural immunity could account for the state's current low infection rate. Dobbs wasn't directly asked about the governor's comments, but he took issue with the idea that Mississippi has been spared the brunt of the virus. I don't think we've been remotely spared. I think that we've suffered and lost a lot of loved ones. You know, if you if you did a, you know, sort of a back of the envelope calculation based on percentages and assumptions on natural immunity from infection, you know, the combined value puts us, you know, around 60 something percent of people with some underlying immunity. So we're now sort of seeing that effect most likely uh, because we have a combination of natural and uh, vaccine induced immunity. But the vaccination is still very important, even if you've had COVID. And we know that the immune response from the vaccine is robust and it augments it if you've had the vaccine, before, if you've had the virus before, but also it, it looks like the immunity from the vaccine is actually more potent than the uh, post-infection immunity. Reporting from last week indicated that Mississippi returned or wasted nearly 850,000 vaccine doses it received from the federal government. Dobbs says that's not quite true. Just so you know, how do we how do we get vaccines? We kind of run almost a real time inventory. So based on demand, we pull it down from our federal allocation. So the 870,000 doses that has been you know, sh- shared in, in the media, those are the doses that could have been available to us if we needed them. Right. So those aren't doses that we had and we sent anywhere. That's, those are just underutilized doses. And of course, early on, we recognized that other states were in greater need. And so I was happy to work with Rhode Island and Maine to make sure that they had those those vaccines available. If Mississippi people don't understand how important it is to keep them alive, we want to protect other Americans. And so I was glad we were able to sort of get ahead of the federal program to help our fellow Americans in the Northeast. There were a very there's been a very small number of, of wasted doses. I think Liz has shared that before with some different folks. Overall, it looks like you know altogether, MSGH has uh, wasted maybe 1,300 doses. Right with but when you consider that each vial contains either six or 11 doses, or now either 16 or six doses, you know, and if you don't have that many people there, you just can't use them all because they have a very short shelf life after you, you know, you open them up. But right now, that's not the concern, right? We don't want vaccines sitting in a fridge because someone's afraid they might waste a dose or two. A vaccine in an arm is better than six vaccines in a refrigerator, right? So that's not going to be really something that we should see as an impediment. If we have someone who wants a shot, we need to get it to them, whatever we can do under every circumstance. 
As of June 10th, 28% of Mississippians are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. That's the lowest rate of any state in the nation. Coming up, plans for a major wind farm are underway in Tunica. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A project to build up to 100 wind turbines across 13,000 acres of land in Tunica County is a go after receiving approval from the Mississippi Public Service Commission. Brandon Presley is the state's northern district commissioner. He tells our Ashley Norwood that surprising, though it may seem, Tunica is a pretty good spot for a wind farm. The company Vestas is one of the largest manufacturers of wind turbines and the blades anywhere in the world, and they've been studying the wind pattern there in the North Delta for several years now, looking at both weather patterns, the density of the air, the wind that is available. And their research showed that once you went up an additional several feet into the air, there actually was the potential for wind generation in Tunica County. And so this is based upon their own research. This project is a private investment. So they're using their dollars. This is not any state dollars or federal dollars going into the project outside of possibly some tax credits, but this it's not funded through the state or the federal government. This is a private firm investing $200 million into this project, and they've done it all based on their own research. And so they've spent several years, again, looking at wind patterns, the density of the wind, and it shows the potential that they could invest their money, be able to sell electricity on the open market, and see a return on their investment because uh, of locating in the Mississippi Delta. So for those who may be unfamiliar with what kind of a facility this is, can you explain just how does it work? Well, this is a 13,000-acre wind farm. But when I say 13,000 acres, uh, obviously all 13,000 will not be occupied with wind turbines. The turbines themselves that generate the electricity will only occupy 1% to 3% of the land mass within that 1,300 acres. Excuse me, 13,000 acres. And so with that, the land occupation will only be a small portion of it. And of course, there'll be a lot of open space because you have to have that space for the blades to turn and for them to have room to go back and forth as far as transport and work with construction and operations and maintenance. But this project will generate electricity there in Tunica County in the North Delta, and it'll be sold on the open market into the mid-continent independent system operator energy market, which actually encompasses all of the areas of the middle part of the United States from Canada all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico and Louisiana. And so this electricity generated there in Tunica County could be sold anywhere literally in the United States. So what does this mean for Mississippi uh, for the future? Well, I think that first and foremost, it sends a signal to the investment community and to the rest of the world that Mississippi is open for business for renewable energy projects. These projects are, are very beneficial to local taxpayers. The, the wind farm will be paying millions of dollars in local taxes that will support uh, schools, uh, law enforcement, roads, bridges, infrastructure, and the, and the general uh, welfare of the people in Tunica County, but also will be creating jobs, permanent jobs there in the community. And so I think that, you know, number one, sending the signal to the, to the world that we're open for business, for renewable energy projects in our state. Secondly, uh, the pure dollar benefits that are going to come to the local community. And it also, I think, 
sends another signal, and that is that, that Mississippi is embracing the moves forward on clean, renewable energy in a responsible way that makes sense for protecting the reliability of the electric grid, but at the same time creating the opportunities to have those investments. One of the things that I was very keen on as, as we evaluated this project was looking at weatherization. We saw what just happened back in February in Texas where uh, folks were out of power for an excessive many, uh, amount of time. In many cases, there was not the ability to generate power. One of the great things about this project is that they have weatherized and have their plans have modeled weather all the way down to 22 degrees below zero. But again, this electricity that is generated there in Tunica County is going to be sold on the open market. So if the market is there and they're able to generate it, they'll be able to sell it. If at the same time, there's not that opportunity they want. So this, no one in Mississippi will be bound to take this energy, but it may make the best economic sense during several portions of the calendar year to do that to lower folks' rates. And so this is a, a private investment that will sell electricity on the open market. And with that, they will be able to hopefully uh, have a successful project. And also, when we looked at, you know, we never had a chance in Mississippi for a wind-generating facility. Nobody thinks the wind blows hard enough or long enough in our state to do that. But based on this research that they have done and spent their money to do it, they felt that that business opportunity exists. Was there any pushback on this? And if so, for what reasons? Uh, there's not been. There's been some questions around weatherization because of some of the different facts and, and some that have been distorted facts that came out of the Texas related to uh, power generation. But the clear point to that is this, this is a free market, open market approach to electricity. So if there's not a there's no one to buy this power from as a power company side, obviously they're not selling it. So this is a private investment that is going to reap benefits in the open market. And I think that those are the things that it's very clear to try to make those distinctions on. And it's another reason that we focused on what were their plans on weatherization. One of the things besides being able to operate uh, at 22 degrees below zero was that they have made sure that they have uh, all-weather roads that will be throughout the plant so that they could get in, do the maintenance that needed to be done at a time of an ice storm. That was one of the big issues in Texas was accessing the wind turbines and in some places different other power generating facilities to be able to get to them to do the repairs or to do the maintenance in the middle of these ice storms. And so that's something we've asked about on the front end, and it's something that they have, have made preparations for. And so we feel we feel good about moving forward. And tell me about the timeline. When should we expect the facility to be uh, completed? Well, we announced it on Wednesday, and actually the day we announced it, uh, their engineers were meeting with a group of local farmers. Farmers, by the way, on the 13,000 acres, aside from the 1% to 3% that will be occupied by the turbines themselves, farmers will be able to continue to use that land for agricultural purposes, grow crops, or, or whatever. So it'll be able to retain that natural purpose. Uh, but they were meeting with farmers that day. Secondly, they're going to hopefully begin construction this summer, and we hope that construction will be completed by the end of 2023. Northern District Commissioner Brandon Presley, again, we thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about what's happening in Tunica and how it's going to impact the state. Thank you. It's always good to be with Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Thank you for the chance. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. 
Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.